Welcome to Taking the Middle Seat, a podcast where we explore connection where you might not think it exists. I'm your host, Andrea, and I've always believed there is connection to be made when you sit next to someone and really take in their story. So every couple weeks, I'm taking the middle seat. I'm listening in on someone's story because I know that the middle seat holds healing and acceptance and laughter and community. If we just stay open and remember that we belong to each other, I hope you'll listen in to each and every episode and that you'll find yourself moving in to hear the magic in the middle seat. This is episode three of Taking the Middle Seat, and today I'm interviewing a great friend of mine, Justine Brayford. She's a sex therapist and a fellow social worker, and basically a total rock star, blazing trails in this community. She's a champion for women to take better care of themselves and their sexual health. So just a heads up that we do talk about sex in this episode, obviously. Um, I think it's pretty PG-13, but if you have little ears around who suddenly have like bat ears, like supersonic hearing, when any mention of sex comes up, you may want to listen with earbuds in or wait until you're alone with a drink or a glass of wine later. We also, heads up, talk about um, perinatal loss. So if you yourself have walked through losing a child or miscarriages, just remember to tune into your emotions when you're listening and do what feels right to take care of yourself. Just a little social work public service announcement there. A couple more notes before we jump in. Um, The sound in this episode is not great, you guys. I'll just say that right now. I could have spent a million and five hours editing and tweaking and fixing, but I just didn't because there is life to live and I needed to move on. Um, I think it's still worth listening despite the junky sound, so hang in there and keep your volume control handy because it kind of goes up and down. I have since purchased another microphone that is rad looking, first of all, but I'm hoping it'll fix all of my recording ills. So next thing is keep subscribing and rating and reviewing. A bunch of you have subscribed. Thank you so much for doing that. Now go ahead and rate and write a little review. That would be so amazing for me. It's helpful to grow the podcast and for podcast listeners to find the podcast, even if they aren't specifically looking for it. We talk a bunch in this episode about some resources and books and other cool things. I will link all of those things on my website, takingthemiddleseat.com in the show notes. So right now, all the details I think are covered. Let's get to the good stuff. My interview with Justine Brayford. So today I have Justine Brayford on Taking the Middle Seat. And I'm super excited because we've known each other for a while and you have lots of cool things about you, but two in particular that I want to talk about because I think there are two things that people assume they know things about and I'm almost 100% certain they assume wrong. (laughs) I don't have any idea. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about you first. I know these things, but tell the world um, just like you and who you are and kids and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. So, um, my name is Justine Brayford. I am a sex therapist. I want to start that and just dive right in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sex therapist. Um, I'm married. I've been married for almost 10 years to my high school sweetheart, Zach. Um, we together have four children, um, two children who have passed away and then two living children, um, Claire Truman and Charlotte and Isla. Um, live here in, do you say where we are? Sure. <laughs> Grand Rapids. Yeah. Three people listening in, you know, they, exactly where I live. They, yeah, yeah. So I live right here in Grand Rapids with, with Andrea. Yeah. 
And the entire listening party. Yeah, I'm petting your dog beneath the table right here. She's so sweet. Um, we have two dogs at home, which we were just talking about as we walked in. A very old dog who is small and white. His name is Jack, and he's 16, and he has dementia, and he can't hear. And then we have a large black dog who is very high anxiety, just like her mother. And, <laughs> and yeah, so... Um, that's what, what else do you want to know about me? Um, I think that's good. Is that yeah, a little good? Okay. Social workers with insane dogs. That's yes. Where we connect. That's yeah. that's one of the ways we connect Stuff for sure. Dogs. Yeah. I love it. So, all right, we're backing up to being a sex therapist. Oh, yeah. So, from when I met you, I remember probably even right around that time you had talked about like that's the dream, the goal eventual like I wanted to do that and then you went and made it happen and then I just did it and then you just did it you just went in and did it yeah you got all sorts of training um I did mm-hmm. and now you are part of this center for sexual health right the Grand Rapids what is it called the center for women's sexual health yeah mm-hmm. so tell me about that tell me about how it happened okay who's a part of it what's the goal all of that Yeah. It seems um, super unlikely that I would be doing this kind of work, I think. Um, There's nothing about my background, I think, that was like, oh, yes, she's definitely going to become a sex therapist one day. I grew up um, in a really small town where nobody talked about sex. Like, my parents didn't really talk about sex other than jokingly in the household. So it's not like Mm -hmm. I had some kind of extraordinary background that led me to this. Because I do think people either think you're swinging from the rafters. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, the goal or you have some history of trauma and that makes you, and I mean you do, but not as far as I know. Anyway, mm-hmm. some major trauma that puts you in that right. direction. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just, it just became an interest. Yeah, yeah. And the way it became an interest actually was in grad school. So it was really um, serendipitous. My last semester there, I had the option of taking um, an, an extra class, right? So just a filler class. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go with something easy. I'm going to go with the treatment of sexual dysfunction with mm-hmm. Sally Foley, who is an absolute goddess mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> just the queen of sex therapy in Michigan. And she was my instructor. And during this class, I thought, well, whatever, I'll just take it and then I'll graduate and everything will be fine. And I left that class knowing what I was supposed to do mm-hmm. with my life. Yeah, I know. And it was just like watching videos of people having sex. Some of that was very, I, I would get into the car after class and my husband would go, well, what kind of sex video did you watch tonight in class when you'd pick me up? Because at the time we had one car um, and he's such a trooper for moving to Ann Arbor with me so I could go to school. And I realized that sex therapy really encompassed everything that I wanted to be as an eventual therapist. Mm-hmm. So grief and loss, anxiety, uh, trauma, depression, um, and then also this medical side, right? So there, there are very concrete ways that we tend to treat sexual dysfunction, and it usually goes hand in hand with a medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the appeal of that, which as well, yeah, eventually I actually became a medical social worker, and that's the circumstances under which we met. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of that was always on my back burner. Um, I always knew that that was something that I wanted to do. Even at the time, it felt a little bit like a pie-in-the-sky dream, like, but I'm not really going to do that, but I'm going to talk about this is the thing that I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And then kind of in my style, I waited for doors to open, and they did, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time that we met, yeah, I was still definitely talking about that, and Eventually, I left my job as a medical social worker, and I went out into the wilderness, as Brene Brown says. Yes. 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 
where the best things happen. Yes. yes, but it's also the scariest place. Absolutely the scariest, yes. And in, in the um, region where we live, West Michigan, I mean, come on, this is more than the wilderness, talking about sex and, and just being really vocal about it. Um, but I did it, and I got my foot in the door um, with a, a great place where I'm, I'm still at. Um, and it's been good. I've grown a practice. It grew very, very fast. Mm -hmm. So the need became very evident Mm -hmm. very quickly. So I would say as soon as I started marketing myself as a sex therapist, after all of my training was finished, um, I was totally full and turning away maybe five to 10 people a day in one or two months. Like it was very, very quick. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you think most often, and maybe there's not something that's the most often, but what do you think brings people to you the most often? Yeah. There is no typical client for sex therapy. I see, so my youngest client is 14 years old, and my oldest clients are 65. Mm -hmm. Um, And their problems range from or their presenting issues are things like coming to terms with gender identity. Mm-hmm. So working with transgender, LGBTQIA, um, uh, sexual pain, trauma, so childhood sexual abuse, recovering from that. Sometimes it's single incident trauma, so sexual assault in adulthood. Um, occasionally I will treat things like erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, mm-hmm. stuff that you might think, oh, that's so extra in somebody's life. but. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's it's huge, and it for people it carries so much weight and so much pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I treat. Lots of stuff having to do with women and orgasmia, so inability to have an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, those are those are what I would say are the most common. And then couples, of course. So mm-hmm. differences in desire. That's um, maybe the most common. If I had to point point to one thing, I get a lot of couples. I think people would be they want to seek out counseling and they probably might have some idea that this is the type of counseling that they need but my my assumption is people are really scared to name it that or to reach out in that specific way do people do you find that people get over that because they're referred to you or how do people or how should people kind of look at what's going on with them and say is sex therapy actually what I need or what might address what's going on with me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think right now there's not exactly a good system, especially in our area. I think if you live in an area like Ann Arbor that has a really large concentration of sex therapists, Mm -hmm. people are pretty familiar with sex therapists and what they do. But in Grand Rapids, I think people um, don't really know what I do. And when their physician recommends sex therapy for whatever their presenting issue is, Mm -hmm. they oftentimes will feel taken aback. It is not unusual for people to say, I've had this referral for three months mm-hmm. and I'm just calling you today. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I welcome people at that point. I just say, yes, I know that, that, and I always acknowledge making that first call is so difficult. And I always just take a minute to acknowledge how difficult that is for people mm-hmm. um, and respect them in that space because, wow, to be able to come into a a relative stranger's office and say, I have this sexual problem, which people are reluctant to talk about anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about 
erections and vulvas and body parts that yes. we've been told our whole lives are personal, private. We don't talk about that. Don't put mm-hmm. your hands there. You know, constantly reinforce that this is something that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there are walls to break down to begin with, yeah. but. The first session, I usually keep really conversational so they can talk about their sexual dysfunction or not. Mm-hmm. Normally, I have some sense of what they're coming in with, and I just follow the client's lead. Mm-hmm. So often, I mean, it can be three or four sessions before someone feels like they know me well enough mm-hmm. to go into, here's what happens in my bedroom, or here's what doesn't happen in my bedroom, or here's what happened to me five years ago. And um, yeah, so it's the pace is something that the client sets. I would think especially for women and probably men too is that not only do they have to get over even seeking therapy and whatever but there is like shame and thinking that I'm worth enough to even address sexual pleasure or my own sexual experience like that's not even on the radar no. of being something that women are allowed to spend time yeah. improving Yeah, and that's just it's yeah. so far beyond it's so which makes it so exciting that you're doing this work and I bet you get to see women go oh my gosh this opens up a whole new aspect of my life yeah not just sex but like just intimacy and the breadth and depth of all of that that all that means yeah yeah definitely and I think for um for a lot of the women who I see the hardest part about sex therapy is embracing their sexuality as something that they just get to enjoy all by themselves like mm-hmm. this exploring those pieces of themselves that's often the most vulnerable thing mm-hmm. i can um get them to a place in their relationships where they have more frequent sex where their sex is no longer painful mm-hmm. um but often the last part of the work that we can get to is oh, I, I'm actually experiencing pleasure during this. Um, I always think that pleasure goes hand in hand with being super vulnerable, mm-hmm. having an orgasm. You have to be super vulnerable with your partner. And we know that oftentimes it takes three or more months of knowing somebody to be able to, for women at least, mm-hmm. have an orgasm in their partner's presence. And I think that's really fascinating. It speaks to the level of vulnerability that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes in therapy. So the first thing that I can usually help with is getting sex to happen more frequently and getting partners to stay present with each other's touch. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is, which is all, which is usually the most painful, um, is how do you love yourself, aside, if, even if your partner is not there. Mm-hmm. So what doesn't happen in sex therapy? Oh, imagine. good question. What is happening in that little room? Good question. So what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is um, any touching. So I don't ever touch my clients. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. We just need to get it out there. We you know what? Say it. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. <laughs> um, what doesn't happen? What else? I don't talk about my own sex life okay, <laughs> in therapy. So this is all about you. You don't have to demonstrate anything that I'm teaching you in session. So everything is homework. You take home. You do in the privacy of your own home. The exception to that would be really low-level touch exercises, like you know, can you can you um, write a word on your partner's palm, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's something we could do in session. But sex therapists have to have very good boundaries and the highest standard of ethics of, I I would say like any other profession, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with stuff that is, um, at sometimes 
we're dealing with like highly charged information in the room, right? So you have to be really careful about how you're handling that um, as human people. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that there's limited amounts of transference and countertransference, especially when you're doing sex therapy. And those are just terms for like what you're feeling about what the client's telling you and inferences that a client is making about you. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And a lot of what your background is in training and then ongoing, I know because I am a social worker, but that you also are not in therapy, but we call it um, supervision. Yes. So you're in supervision with yeah. other like mentor social workers. Definitely. The same type of work. So that if you do run into those issues, then you kind of have a place to go. Yeah, we have a place that. to process that for sure. And as sex therapists, we... I, I don't, I've never met a sex therapist who doesn't do supervision for the rest of their career. So supervision, we think of sometimes as being, um, as social workers, something that you do until you get fully licensed. Mm-hmm. However, as a sex therapist, I pay social workers um, or other sex therapists from around the country to Skype with me, to meet with me, to talk about cases and what I might be missing. And that's really helpful, and I'll do that forever. Mm-hmm. And if people are looking for a therapist that's in sex therapy, they probably, that might be a good question to ask, I'm guessing, is if they're also in supervision, if that counselor's in supervision, yeah, um, ongoing, because um, that's probably a sign that that person is really devoted to their work in a healthy way. Um, I, I completely agree. So I'm always curious about whether other people are in consultation. And I would encourage you, if you are looking for a therapist, especially a sex therapist, feel free to ask, like, who do you consult with regarding complex cases? Mm-hmm. Um, and they should be able to say, oh, yeah, I have a monthly peer group. You know, I, I change names and identifying information, but that's how I get feedback about cases. Mm-hmm. And that's a really normal and um, healthy thing to be doing for my own self-care, mm-hmm. but also for my clients my clients get the benefit of having other eyes on their case again with names and identifying information changed so what's your favorite part of your job Mm. oh yeah there's so much there's so much I love taking a topic that was super taboo in a person's life and bringing it right out into the light and I I call them like all these little shame monsters that live, Mm -hmm. live in them. Like you bring them out into the light where they shrivel up and die Mm -hmm. and people just, and then other people, and then other parts of their life come to life. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Or life a lot. They can go talk about this area of their life, Mm -hmm. which may carry the most shame, or at least they perceive it as having the most shame then, yeah, of course, that, like, lights them up for having bravery and in other areas of their life. Oh, yeah, totally. I think if you can talk about sex, you can talk about anything, especially in your relationship. So the other... I love seeing people through from beginning, you know, usually people are in pretty dire straits when they come to me, if they're seeking out a therapist and they're paying you by the hour Mm -hmm. to help them with a problem, Mm -hmm. they're in a pretty desperate place Mm -hmm. normally. And I love seeing people through all the way to the end where, you know, they, they say, Justine, you've helped us so much. Thank you. We're on maintenance now. And this is, Mm -hmm. this has been amazing. And I've learned so much about myself. There is just nothing more rewarding than that for me to see people through. And that was the one thing for me that medical social work was sometimes missing. So being an outpatient social worker, um, I would often meet people one or maybe two times, Mm -hmm. depending on if I was rounding in the hospital or doing my my main job in an outpatient clinic. And then I often wouldn't get to see, you know, I'd give them referrals, but I wouldn't get to see it through Mm -hmm. to the end. Mm -hmm. And this has kind of closed the loop for me. And that's been personally very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Well, you can tell that you love it and that you're meant 
for this work because you light up when you talk yeah. about it. And I, like I said, heard you talk about it for so long and to see just like the training and then yeah. the private practice grow mm-hmm. like crazy and then the center that you're a part of. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. It's been a real dream come true. <laughs> it really has. What are your even bigger hopes, dreams for this work? in the future. Oh my goodness. Well, I would love to teach. Mm-hmm. I I would love to get in with a university and teach this to other social mm-hmm. workers. I would love to do something like the great Sally Foley does, which is she she has her hands in lots of different things, but one of her great passions was teaching this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love to be able to do that. Um, eventually I would love to offer even more workshops. So we currently do have the Wonder of Women series going on and that's where I'm partnered with the Center for Women's Sexual Health. So we, we offer free or very low cost workshops for women to come to in the community. And depending on, you know, what you have interest in, they're monthly. Um, I would love to do more of that. I would love to run groups. So premarital groups right now, my time is really taken up by the, the Mm one-on-one psychotherapy. So I do that I see about 35 clients a week, and that's a lot, especially when you work in documentation and all of that. So I'm pretty well maxed out between that and the Wonder of Women series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, eventually I would like to cut back on the client load that I have and teach other people how to do this and mm-hmm. supervise other sex therapists. So I will link to the center, and is there a way to like register online for the classes yes absolutely yep there's a registration link right on there so we just like to have an idea of how many people are showing up um but this month march is how to talk to your kids about sex which is awesome i just that's amazing i know we have a wonderful sex educator heather alberta who i believe is the only certified sexuality educator in the state Mm -hmm. she is coming to give this talk and it's going to be Amazing. Yes. I'm going to bring my notepad. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm in the thick of that. Let me tell you. Yes. Um, I, I'll show you this book after we're done because I'm going to forget the title, but I'll link to it because um, I was, of course, listening to a podcast and it was this lady talk, she, who wrote a book that's um, called, I think it's called 30 Days of Sex Talks for, and it's at different ages. So it's like yeah. little bitties all the way mm-hmm. to like, I think it's 14 plus or something. Oh gosh. Like that. Okay. Um, and they're these little short books, mm-hmm. and they give you just kind of talking points. Um, and you don't have to do it every single day for 30 days. The poor child is right? ready to kill me. And <laughs> it's like, it's time for your sex talk. Come on. Um, anyways, so we did a few of them. But as a parent who I feel like I'm pretty free and breezy about this kind of stuff, like it does not make me blush to talk to the my kids about sex and you know mm-hmm. the whole shebang uh-huh. but the first day she the talking point was about the different types of sex mm-hmm. and so it's like anal and the whole the whole thing yes. and I was just like so I had my dear sweet 11 year old sitting in front of me and I was like mommy can't actually say the words I just can't I'm gonna, I'm gonna I need a minute I need to breathe <laughs> I have some sweat on my upper lip I'm fine <laughs> What is my problem? I just couldn't say the word. I got there. We're fine. We got through it. It was five minutes of my life. <laughs> it was just like, what is wrong with you? Oh, my gosh. Oh, she already thinks just like regular old sex is the most crazy pants thing. That it's so nuts. It is. 
but to talk about a different, she's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, I need to go to that series. Yes, it's, it's so good. You can't see me, but I have, like, tears running down my face. I'm laughing so hard because I... I am a sex therapist, right? So I feel like I have minimal shame around my own sexuality. And I recognize that you're sexual from the day that you're born. Um, but even with my own kids, you know, when we talk about body safety and, you know, which is where it starts, that's where sex ed starts is knowing proper names, um, knowing about body safety, who can touch what, safe adults, all of that, all of that stuff is early sex ed. Um, yeah, it's still, it still kind of gives me pause to say the words out loud. Um, And I recall when we had children, well, before we had children, Zach and I talked about, um, I I felt like it was really important to teach our kids correct names for their body parts Mm -hmm. and to be precise about it. Mm -hmm. So vulva and vagina, that's two different things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Penis and testicles. and, (laughs) And now it feels so natural to us. But at the beginning, we were like, and you're... Penis. <laughs> yes. It does get better. Like, there are some things. Yes. Ooh. Yep. As a mama, it just puts a little different paint job on it for some reason. <laughs> it like, does. Yeah. yeah. You're really confronted with it when it's your own kids. I. Yeah. So I, I. I. Um. I talk to parents about this all the time, but and then and then I always say at the end, seriously, I'm a sex therapist. I get it. It's hard. That's not an excuse to not have the conversation. Like, don't let your own discomfort set the tone for your kid for the rest of their lives. So just get it out. Just get it out. Even if you're feeling really uncomfortable. Um, I would say 99% of the cases or 99% of the people that I see in sex therapy had parents who just let it go unsaid. And that speaks volumes. Because what don't we talk about? hard things, gross things, you know, shameful things. So even if you say nothing, you're sending a really, really um, strong message to your kids about sex. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good for you, Andrea. You know, I'm trying, Justine. I hear your voice in my head. I'm like, you can do this. I can do it. To talk to your child about all the things, all of them. All of them. I was like, really, day one author of this book? Day one? We start with like... Day one, but sex basics. <laughs> okay. Oh, Here we go. go. This will be a fun ride. It's hilarious. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes okay. for the rest of the month. Mm-hmm. And I'll come to your seminar. That's amazing. Parents yeah. will beat that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we mentioned that we met through work. Oh, we did meet through work. Yes, we did. Um. So I actually do the job that you were doing because I was hired to cover um, your maternity leave and then yeah. some other, like eventually just other vacations and things. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so here's the little story of how I entered <laughs> Justine's life. So I was supposed to cover her maternity leave and then I got a call saying, come on in, just we're ready to start. And I was like, okay, that seems soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I walked in and you were there, which mm-hmm. also sort of surprised me. Yeah. And not pregnant. Yeah. And I was really like, what in the world is happening? So I think in hindsight, of course, um, sitting in a room essentially for weeks and then talking to each other about the trauma that you'd just been through. Yeah. And I was emotionally removed from it, which I think was good. And you could just talk and talk and talk. So tell me a little bit about what happened right yeah. before, like the week before I walked into that office. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it was so weird that 
I remember looking at you and I could see the confusion on your face, but I thought, surely someone has told her surely. before she entered this room with me, which literally this room, how big would you, it was a, it previously was a closet. <laughs> I've even already talked about my closets. Have you? On the first episode. Yes. yes. I was telling my first guest that my office is probably the size of my dining room table, which yes. is not huge. Um, and yeah, it's just tinier than you can imagine. It's a yes. real small room. Very small. I don't know if it has its own HVAC. I can't remember, but yeah, it was awesome. it was stuffy. You shut that door and you could die in there. So it's tiny. Um, and here we were, very close in proximity to each other. You sit down in this chair, and I'm looking at you trying to figure out if you know or if I have to tell you. Mm-hmm. And it was my responsibility to tell you, which I still am like, ugh, what happened there, you know? That's how to... a whole other set of <sighs> Yeah, that's yeah, a, that's a story for another day. Mm-hmm. You didn't know. Um, so... My husband and I all back up. Um, we had our daughter, Claire, and yeah, we had her. She was our firstborn child, and we had some difficulty becoming pregnant again, so we actually decided we were going to adopt. Mm-hmm. And so when Claire was about two, we submitted an application for adoption, thinking, like, this is just not going to happen for us. We have secondary infertility, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. We were fine with adopting. And... Right around the time that our initial application was approved, I discovered that I was pregnant, Mm -hmm. miraculously. So we were super thrilled, you know, also disappointed because we wanted to adopt, but super thrilled. Mm -hmm. Um, And I proceeded to have this kind of uh, really interesting pregnancy from the start. So I I was seeing a midwife planning on a home birth for our second child, Mm -hmm. and um, partway through, I think I was about six weeks or not six weeks I'm sorry 16 weeks pregnant and I had this incident where I was bleeding you know and I shouldn't have been bleeding and um my my water had broke which was very odd so we thought um, I'm gonna lose this pregnancy mm-hmm. and I went to the hospital mm-hmm. at my midwife's urging and we discovered that I was indeed still pregnant and I was pregnant with twins Yeah, crazy, right? Twins. And I remember that day as being the happiest day of my life. Mm -hmm. My husband was certain I was having a miscarriage, and he was actually hunting um, in the Upper Peninsula or near the Upper Peninsula. He took a private plane home. He chartered a private plane, flew in as they were bringing me back from ultrasound, Uh and I just unraveled like this giant thing of pictures of two babies. And he was just, I remember we were just both crying and the ultrasound tech was like, I'm going to need you to calm down so I can continue to get pictures. But these babies look beautiful. They're healthy. They're perfect. You know, everything is great. Um, And so my pregnancy kind of continued along. I was monitored very, very closely by both a midwife and a physician in the area who's in the absolute salt of the earth, um, Dr. Dahm. And, um, and actually funny enough, he, he works with the women's center for sexual health. So he's like, there's this, there's this connection there that it's, that's all kind of woven into also my career. So that's kind of an interesting piece of the story as well. Um, but anyway, the pregnancy was going along really well. Everything was wonderful. I was huge, giant, like measuring full term Uh at, um, 28 weeks. And we were going to start having to measure the other way around because I was well over term measuring um these big beautiful very healthy babies mm-hmm. ultrasounds every week you know listening to heart tones everything was perfect until it wasn't mm-hmm. so 
around 28 weeks, I went in for a very normal checkup. So I worked that entire day, had no idea, um, you know, that this was going to be a day that was out of the ordinary at all. I was an anxious mom. I still am an anxious person. So before every appointment, I was always quite nervous. And at this appointment, we learned that one of our babies, Charlotte, did not have a heartbeat. And Isla's heartbeat was very low. So baby B heartbeat was very, very low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happened next was, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes I think like, oh, that's, it's really hard to remember. And some, some pieces of it feel super, super vivid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about a little bit if you want me to the EMDR that I had afterwards and that piece of it. But so I was rushed to the hospital. I had an emergency C-section. Um, and uh, Charlotte was born still, and Isla was in the NICU mm-hmm. for another, oh gosh, probably 12 hours, and she lived, but she she um, eventually passed away, and uh, her, her little body had sustained so much trauma that we, we had no idea what happened was very suddenly, mm-hmm. we discovered Charlotte had developed a brain bleed, and um, what we learned later is that Charlotte and Isla were identical twins sharing a placenta. So when there is what they call fetal demise, that is the official term for it, um, in twins that are sharing a placenta, time is of the essence. And if unless you catch it the moment it's happened, it doesn't look good for your babies. So that's basically what happened to Charlotte and Isla. Um, I was in a just absolute traumatized haze for those first couple of weeks, and I think I returned to work after two weeks. Um, at somewhere in my mind, I was like, "This will be fine." <laughs> I'm <gonna return laughs> what? Yeah, just totally lost two children. So I think what I'll do is return to work, and um, then enters Andrea, who ended up playing this pivotal role for me, just holding space for me, just nodding and sipping her iced coffee that she loves, and and asking me like, I don't think I knew anything about Andrea in those first days. I was like, "Hi, stranger. Here's all of my baggage. Hello, secondary trauma. I don't know what that was like for you." <laughs> I've never asked you, but, um, you know, for me, it was a game changer. Like, I I recognize you as one of the people who held space for me um, at a time when not very many people could tolerate what was happening to me, and they kind of kept their distance because they didn't want to say the wrong thing, and you didn't have a lot to say, which was fine. You you nodded a lot, and you said, this is so hard, this is, this is awful, um, I can't believe this happened to you, you know, I'll, I'll hear this as many times as you need me to hear it, I promise you I'll bear witness to this, and that's what you did, was bear witness to my pain, and that's how we met. Well, and I think I, not because I had any previous experience mm. with that type of trauma, and I don't think because I'm a social worker, I think it's just because we yeah. had to sit in that room, it yes. taught me yeah. so much about just just staying in yes. the space and mm-hmm. yeah I had to be there because I had to be there I held you hostage um, made you my trauma story <laughs> and we pretended to teach me yeah. what I was supposed to do in yes. the um, but I think what I learned for so many other experiences since then mm, yeah. and um, I actually found an interview you did with like GR doulas or something Yeah, that had so many good things to tell people about what to do if you have a loved one that has really experienced any loss, I think it would be applicable mm-hmm. to um, 
but also specifically this kind, because I think people are particularly scared, freaked out, don't know what to do Mm -hmm. about this type of loss. Um, And you just said, just hold space. Yeah. Just stay. Just be quiet. Mm -hmm. Just ask them, not just what can I do, because oftentimes Mm -hmm. people don't, Mm -mm. they don't actually need you to do something. Right. But how can I honor your children? How can I, is it okay that I say their name? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I think people just don't know. And it's so helpful to just hear from someone that's been through it what what was supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what's not supportive, too. I mean, if that's important to know. But I think more so just giving people the tools to say, just stay. Mm-hmm. Just be there. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite things to say about that experience, because I do have, it's been four years. Can you believe that? That's crazy. It's been four years since Charlotte and Isla died. Um, and one of the best piece of, pieces of advice that I can give is don't just say something, stand there, or sit there. Like, Don't just fill the space with whatever baloney talk. Just be there. Mm-hmm. Just be silent with me. Um, yeah, but four years later, people are circling back to me now where they feel like there's some distance between the trauma and, and me. So they, um, they'll ask what was helpful. Did I do or say anything that was insensitive at that time? Mm -hmm. It's a really common question that I get about four years out. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember, um, I remember mostly what people did, right. And there was a lot, I think, Andrea, you bore witness to a lot of what people said that was very, very, very wrong. Um, so, so offensive, so hurtful, um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's all of that, and you'll have that, Mm -hmm. that's what I say, like, you'll have that, Mm -hmm. people are gonna say the wrong thing, but I choose to focus on the fact that I was really set up for, to survive this, I really, really was, like, the fact that you came into my life as a person who shared a little tiny space with me, and Mm -hmm. when I had to be away from Claire, I had the opportunity to process what happened to me with you, was an absolute godsend, um, you know, I always talk about how my best friend Shannon moved within 20 minutes of me, and she was two hours away. And Shannon, fun fact, I hope I hope this isn't the wrong fact. I think it's right. <laughs> she actually lost a job because she came over so frequently to help me watch my daughter Claire so that I could go to therapy. Aww. Yeah, she's like, well, I lost my job today. <laughs> so I've got some time. Yeah. So while I'm looking for a new job, I'll continue to watch Claire for you while you go to therapy so that you don't fall apart. Um, you know, and of course, my sister was there for me and my mom and my dad. And and I, I just had so many people who were taking really good care of me. Mm-hmm. So the people who weren't taking such good care of me now, four years out, I, I scarcely remember that. And I focus much more on what went really right um, and there was a lot, and I'm very fortunate for that. Mm-hmm. Do you? What do you do now on special days or anniversaries mm-hmm. to honor your gorgeous babies? Yeah, well, I do what I do for my two living children. I mm-hmm. bake them a cake mm-hmm. from okay. scratch. Oh, I did see a picture. Of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Every year, so we choose a different cake. You know, I'll ask the kids, "Well, what do you want for Charlotte and Isla's yeah. birthday?" And they're even Truman, who's three. Um, he understands like 
oh yeah, this is Charlotte and Isla's birthday. He sees pictures of them. So we put their pictures out. We sing happy birthday. Mm -hmm. And normally we just take the day to ourself. Um, There's no wrong way to do it. I know lots of families who do all kinds of different things and, you know, whatever it is to honor your loved one who you've lost too soon, which isn't it always too soon. It's like, I'm not ready to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so we, we do that. That's what we do. And then we give a lot in their name. Um, we will do the infant walk every year. So there's one single, this is kind of ridiculous to me, but there's one single event in Grand Rapids mm-hmm. every year. Um, this year it was canceled. So we had nothing. That was like a huge loss. For the infant loss community, it was awful because it was canceled and there was nothing else to take its place and it was canceled very last minute. We are informed very last minute and normally it's a balloon release and just an opportunity to come together um, and recognize your kids. Their names are read out loud every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they sent out a very apologetic email and said, next year we're really going to get on top of the venue that we're going to use and all of that. But, um, yeah, I always say, like, there's no parties for parents who've lost kids. There's no, you know, for NICU parents whose children are surviving, there's actually, a like, this gala that happens every year, mm-hmm. and all the parents come and they show off their babies who've lived. But there's nothing like that for parents who've had babies who died so it's um it was a great loss for the whole community when the walk didn't happen this year oh my gosh yeah Mm -hmm. well and I will um I'll remind myself write myself a note to ask you about organizations that people should or could reach out to if they are walking through this what are good places to turn for Mm -hmm. support um because I would suspect like anything there's also places that Maybe you shouldn't do for support. Totally. Um, but yeah. you would probably know great places for people to mm-hmm. find that community when their people are saying dumb things and not supporting them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just quickly wanted to mention, too, I thought, um, I remember knowing that it was so powerful that you had pictures mm-hmm. of your girls mm-hmm. um, and that you put them up in your office and you showed people. And I think yeah. people don't. You have them up in your home, all yep. of those things. And mm-hmm. I think because we just hide death, period, any mm-hmm. sort of it, mm-hmm. um, showing those photos and taking those beautiful pictures um, was so powerful for me, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure lots of other people. But just mm-hmm. the, I don't know that it felt brave necessarily. It probably just felt right mm-hmm. at the time. But um, I think other people would look at that as maybe brave or something mm-hmm. special to do that. But I think it was just... It was so awesome to yeah. see them because yeah. it makes them people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, yeah, we, we do a lot to keep them visible in our lives because so much of what we do now, I feel like, is um, it's really because of them. You know, like we're way more generous with donating things and donating money and donating our time, and and that was really, I think, because of them. We do a lot in their name. I always think that. I think that they would have been wonderful people who would have brought so much good and joy to this world. So it's the least that we can do to try and inject as much as we can that they might have into the world. So we do that in their name. Um, And we keep pictures up. That is, you know, you're right. I think it, I think brave is the right word because in doing that and sharing photos of dead babies, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it's vulnerable. Yep. And not everyone wants to see that. Yeah. Not everyone wants to see that. So it's like, well, if you don't want to see it, don't come into my office yeah. type thing because I'm grieving over here. Excuse me. <laughs> while I grieve over here. 
Um, but not everyone wants to see that. Um, or maybe it's traumatic for them to see that. I don't know, but I just had to do what was right for me. And I, and I think that every time somebody sees a picture of my girls and I say, yeah, there they are, Charlotte and Isla, right up on the shelf with my other children. It might be shocking for them at first, but like our neighbors are used to seeing those pictures up. Yeah. We don't hide that. Our kids are very used to it. So. Yeah. And I think the more we can normalize all of the phases of life and death. Yes. The better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I always say there's. take the shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say there's lots of death talk at our house. Yeah. So our, our children are often musing about like, hmm, this died. And, you know, what is death? And what is life after death? And I always say like, well, what do you think? I right. put it back on my, where do you think Sharla and Isla are? What do you, what do you think of when you imagine Sharla and Isla and their, mm-hmm. and their other life? And um, my daughter has this wonderful way. So she was two and a half mm-hmm. when they passed away. So really basic understanding of death at that point for her Mm -hmm. but it's been interesting to watch her drawings of our family evolve Mm -hmm. and I I half wonder if it's why no it's her kind of processing Mm -hmm. death and what that means but Mm -hmm. sometimes she'll depict them as birds in the sky or angels in the sky I just found actually I was putting away her kindergarten things and I found a family portrait where um, Zach and I were holding the girls in our arms and her and her brother so it's just it's interesting but we talk a lot about death in our house and Mm -hmm. we don't shy away from that topic in the same way we don't talk we don't shy away from sex sex and death death in our house it's a we have a really (laughs) welcome welcome want to talk about sex and death um we you should see my bedroom by the way that's every time we have a new babysitter or somebody who is going to help us clean our house or something I'm like and never mind all of the sex books next to my bed (laughs) there are about 50 sex books stacked up next to our bed yeah you're professional you need to do education yeah read some things Mm -hmm. it's fine and they're all right there that's right just Mm -hmm. let them assume what they want yes that's the fun part Mm mm-hmm um, all right, so let's ask some fun questions. Okay. Thank you, by the way, for sharing. Yeah, thank thank you for asking. I know that you share your story a fair amount. And yes. With mm-hmm. purpose, and I love that, but I know that it's also probably hard every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Um, so, favorite things. So, I think oh. that favorite things can connect people on just a very yeah. surface level. And mm-hmm. if they have nothing in common, they'll be mm-hmm. like, well, I love chocolate chip cookies, you know, mm-hmm. So it can be... <laughs> I do love chocolate chip cookies. I mean, who doesn't? You don't. You can't be on my podcast. Yes. Just kidding. Um, so what are your favorite things right now? Making oh, my you gosh. Happy, making you smile. It can be super huge. It can be a little tiny. It can be whatever. Okay, let's go superficial. Let's go superficial. I'm, I'm, I'm super vain. Um, my neighbor Jen, who I think loves me, she always says, "Do you know Justine? You're a little bit extra." I'm like, I am. What does this mean? And she's like, your eyelashes, for example. Okay, yep, I have eyelash extensions, and they make me a little bit extra. That's fine. Oh my gosh, I love it. Fine. So tell me about this because I have heard that it changes your life. It does. In all the most important ways. Yeah. I mean, forget about sex therapy. Yeah. It's it's all about the eyelashes. I, I go to Siren and Proper downtown, and okay. they are amazing. Masha does my lashes at Siren and Proper. And 
they are not paying me to say this at all. I go, I go, (laughs) I go and I lie down on Masha's table for my fills. That's what they call them. Lash fills after you get a full set. It's kind of like nails. Um, and I pop in my headphones and I'll listen to Brené Brown or music, or sometimes I even take a nap and she just, she goes to town and I open my eyes an hour later and I have this gorgeous full set of eyelashes that never needs mascara. And on top of that, I never put on eyeliner. So the eyelashes are super extra, but they save me time. It's good to know that your eyes are closed while they do this. Because I've thought before, like, I feel real blinky just thinking about it. And, like, my eyes start to water because I'm like, is somebody going to be up in my eyeball? No, 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 no. Okay. But the first time, my eyes were so twitchy, I kept apologizing. I was like, sorry, I don't don't know how to keep my eyes shut. I don't know how to keep my eyes shut. And she's like, you're fine. She never even said a word the whole time. I was the one who was insecure about it. I couldn't keep my eyes just closed and still. Um, but it's, it's been awesome. It saves me time. So that, and I have my eyebrows microbladed and so I don't have to pencil in my eyebrows in the morning cause I'm super blonde. I have these wispy blonde eyelashes and eyebrows that are not visible. You basically just wake up stunning is the bottom line. I sort of wake up like this. Yeah. I sort of wake up like this. Mm-hmm. So I put on lipstick and maybe a little concealer under my eyes and it just saves me time and my time is valuable. Yes. You know, I realize I that more that. and more. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay. Did you have any other favorites that you were going to talk about? Oh, yeah. One more. I would say Brené Brown. Um, mm-hmm. Her new book, Braving the Wilderness, okay. is amazing. So the quest to belong and belong to yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It's, it's, uh, I was reading it, and several times I just, I, embarrassingly, I was reading this on an airplane, and I was openly weeping at the time <laughs> with the I'm like, always put me on the window seat so that I can just weep openly and people won't judge me. Yeah. And you have your lashes that are not going to bleed. Correct. No mascara. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you're all set up to weep openly in public. I love it. I can. I cry a lot. So that's another reason that I have to have these lashes. (laughs) I'm not ashamed. (laughs) I have not read that book and I'm not sure why I should. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's on audiobook. It's four hours long. So it's a real quick read. I have a super long commute. So um, it took me um, two days, uh, two mornings and two evenings driving home and it was read. So that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I should do it that way. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time getting into nonfiction. Ah, yes. Mm hmm. Which is too bad. Yes. There's a lot of nonfiction. That is delightful. Um, It is. I'm a a fiction gal and I read before I go to bed. Oh. And I just don't need to get that deep right mm. before I go to sleep because I'll Mm-mm. fall asleep and then I will, the message is lost on me. Mm. So, I see. But the audiobook in the car, that's an idea for sure. That's a ticket for me. Again, it's like another time management thing. So I want to read books mm-hmm. that will help me improve myself, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to want it to interfere with like The Walking Dead because I also super love that show. Yeah. Priorities. Priorities. I mean, come on. That's what I'm doing so I can have zombie nightmares every night. Yes. We need to maintain all the things. Yeah. The nightmares, the lashes, <laughs> the self-improvement, all of it. I love it. Yes. Next question. Yes. Is when do you feel the most or what makes you feel the most heard and seen? So it can be like a person that makes you feel that way or a space or a situation or whatever. Yeah, I was thinking about that because you had kind of sent that to me in advance. Um, And I was thinking, well, who makes me feel that way? Mm -hmm. 
I have a couple of friends who really make me feel that way. And I realize it's people who let me talk about myself Mm -hmm. because actually I don't have much of an opportunity to do that. I spend most of my days listening. Yes. I do a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. So it always catches me off guard in a really nice way when somebody will ask me questions about myself, which is why you asked me to do the podcast. And I was like, me talk about myself. I couldn't. Yes, I'll be there. What time? Where? (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, and then you know those people want to listen in a genuine way. And and I know that I can trust them with anything. There's nothing that I could tell them that would leave the vault of their mind. Mm-hmm. They would keep they keep my my darkest secrets, and I can say anything to them. They'll be like, mm, "That's interesting. Well, you want to get into that? All right, that's very interesting." You know, they don't yeah. they listen without judgment, yeah. um, and they often are just so gracious with me because they don't. Like I'm thinking of my best friend, Shannon, sometimes I just call her after work and I just have an emotional dump, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, ah, here's all the things. And she will just listen at the end. I'll go, oh my God, Shannon, how are you? How's your life? Like what's happening with you? And she's like, oh, I just, it's okay. I love hearing about what's going on with you. I'm like, you do. Oh God, I'm sorry. Thank goodness. Because I needed this. Yes, I needed that. I Mm -hmm. met her. She seems great. Shannon is amazing. Gotta have a bestie. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And last question. Um, Mm -hmm. what can, what is something that people can do to create more connection either personally or in their community or as big and big or wide as you want? Mm -hmm. I think, um, this kind of piggybacks off from what makes me feel heard. Mm -hmm. Um, and this comes from Brené's book too, which again has just been really life changing, especially, um, I think in the, political climate that we're in you know there's so there's so much uh that feel it feels like we are so different from each other and you have to be either over in this camp or you have to be in this camp and Brene talks about it in a really beautiful way like how can we foster connection even during these times Mm -hmm. and I live in a place where I am very different from everybody else around me Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I have been trying to remember, and I think I was doing this all along, but Brene named it, so strong back, soft front. Mm-hmm. I really have strong beliefs that I stick to, mm-hmm. but I love to hear other people's mm-hmm. perspectives, and I love to hear why they have those perspectives. Mm-hmm. So strong back, yep, I have really strong beliefs, but soft front, like, I wonder why you believe that. What is your, what is your experience of this world that's brought you to, to feel that way about this? Yeah. And to just not, um, you know, lead with compassion and empathy rather than defensiveness and otherness. Like, we are so different. Um, There are way more ways that we're alike than different. And so when I enter a conversation, I enter with that. Like, I know we're way more alike than we are different, but that doesn't sell. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not how politics work. So Mm -hmm. it's not maybe um, something you hear super commonly. Mm -hmm. I love that because I think sometimes, too, people, if they... They think if they stay open or, um, you know, curious, yes. like the soft front, that the beliefs will then somehow be jeopardized or whatever. But mm-hmm. you can maintain that strong mm-hmm. back and still, like you said, just have your forward-facing, interaction-facing yeah. self yeah. be open and curious yeah. and loving. Yeah. And you're, yeah, then, of course, you're bound to find those threads and connecting things. So, yeah. Absolutely. And as Brene also says, it's really hard to hate somebody close up. Yes. So yes. anyone who is different than me, I think 
I used to really have the idea that like, oh, we are adversarial. Mm -hmm. You know, we have different beliefs on these really important issues. Therefore, Mm -hmm. we can't connect in other ways. But I mean, I have weekly drinks with people who believe completely different than me. And we have a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And I know that these are people who would lay down their life for me. And I would do the same for them. Mm -hmm. My friends, my neighbors, people who don't believe the same things that I do. Mm -hmm. So I've really seen this in action. I've seen this play out. It can work. Yes. Your testament. Yes. yes. <laughs> the whole reason for this podcast. I, love I know. It so, much. so love this podcast too. Love it. Um, well, thank you for coming yes. and making me laugh. Yeah. And telling me all the things. I yeah. really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun. I know. Thank you. All right. We covered a lot of ground this time, you guys. Who knew we could go from sex talk to grief to lashes? to Brene Brown. We got, we covered it. We covered the gamut. I hope you heard Justine's words of wisdom throughout because she dropped some good stuff. And I know I have thought a lot about the concept she mentions of having a strong back and soft heart. I love that. I also loved hearing about her work in sex therapy. I hope we were able to dispel some myths that are out there about what it is and what it isn't. And maybe this motivated you to attend a workshop or read a book or talk to your own kids about sexual health. I did it. I survived. Um, Or maybe you just scheduled an appointment for lash extensions. That's also fine, too. Um, I love Justine's advice about how to be with someone grieving the loss of a child when she said, don't just do something, sit there. I am a doer. I don't know about you guys, but when people are, my people are sad, I am a dinner bringer. I'm an errand runner. I'm a house cleaner. I'm a doer. So this spoke to me loud and clear to be still and leave space for that person to know that I'm just present with them in their grief. That's hard work, but true connection is always worth the hard stuff. So thank you for listening. And I'll be back with you soon for another episode of Taking the Middle Seat.